Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 187, The Queen of Wessex, also known as The Worst Midlife Crisis Ever. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Kate, Earl, and Finn for contributing already. Okay, I'm back! Thank you so much for being patient while I took a week off for the holiday season. I hope you all had a great holiday. I certainly did. And those of you who follow me on Twitter know why. But now that I'm back with only one stolen bag, thanks for that random thief, let's get back to our story. It's Christmas Day, 854. King Aethelweird of East Anglia, a king who we know almost nothing about, is dead. The only evidence we really have that he was alive in the first place are his coins. And that's likely due to the fact that, throughout the Viking Age, succeeding bands of Scandinavian pyromaniacs were destroying the East Anglian written records. But coins don't burn all that well, so at least we have that. So, on this Christmas day, in 854, Prince Edmund, who was Aethelweird's 14-year-old son, succeeded to his father's throne. East Anglia, once the home to mighty King Raidwald, Bretwalda, had suffered through succession issues, conquest, civil war, and now a child king. More importantly, though, is that they had a child king at a time where they were under siege by seemingly endless armies of Scandinavians. Things for East Anglia were bad, and they just kept getting worse. And here's how bad these Vikinger raids were becoming. In the following year, 855, we read of Vikinger armies active in the countryside near the Rican. Now, the Rican was a well-known landmark at the time. And in fact, it's still a fairly well-known landmark in the Midlands today. It's a prominent hill in Shropshire that's been used for centuries to denote boundaries and direction. Nothing fancy, just a hill. But what's shocking about this is where the Rican is. And like I said, today it's in an area that we know as Shropshire. And if you don't know where that is, go ahead and check it out on a map. In the Anglo-Saxon era, the Rican would have been close to the border between Powys and Mercia. So deep in central Britain. This isn't a coastal landmark. There aren't clear, navigable waters leading directly there. To get there from the ocean, any ocean, would be a serious march. It's like hearing of a naval force invading the United States and patrolling the Rockies in Central North America. It's kind of astounding to hear, and it leaves me wondering how they got there. Did they land on the west coast and march inland? In that case, what happened to the towns in the areas of North Wales, Chester, Stoke-on-Trent, and Shrewsbury. They probably would have passed near to all of them on their way to the Rican. And if they marched from the east, what happened to all the Mercian settlements that they passed on their way to the western border of Mercia? What happened at their landing site? Did they land in Northumbria? London? Did they land in East Anglia and make the long march through the Fens? What did these Vikingers do about their boats? Did they leave them? Did they have enough warriors with them that they felt confident that the guard they left behind could defend the camp from an army while the rest of the warriors could handle any other armies they encounter? 
It's just crazy to think about. We don't know exactly what happened here, partially because so many records ended up being put to the torch, but we're getting hints of just how extensive this invasion had become by this point. We aren't looking at coastal raiders anymore. We're looking at armies. And critically, we're looking at armies that were becoming so confident that they were making massive marches inland. And this situation ties into the child king in East Anglia that we mentioned at the opening of the episode. Because while we don't know much about the kings outside of Wessex, we don't even have the regnal dates for many of them, and we certainly don't know the manner in which they lived and died for large portions of these kings, they do seem to be dying at a rapid pace. And that's really interesting when we take into account the fact that we have entire Vikinger armies operating deep in the Midlands with apparent impunity. And that just can't be good for the lifespan of the average Anglo-Saxon. To use a modern example, these days, when someone dies, especially if that person is an American male, there's about a 25% chance that it was heart disease. Well, for the Anglo-Saxons in the 9th century, I'd be willing to wager that the leading cause for the nobles wasn't heart disease. It was probably tall men with fair hair. And I think there's a good chance that the death of King Aethelweird and the rise of a child king very well might have been due to a Vikinger attack. But speaking about nobles dropping dead, let's take a turn towards Wessex. As you might remember, King Aethelwulf had an astounding number of sons. That man was up to his eyeballs in boys, and this was before speed stick. But at some point before this year, 855, his eldest son, Ethelstan, sub-king of Kent, had died. How? We're not sure. But sub-king Ethelstan and his dad, King Aethelwulf, had been fighting with the Scandinavians on a regular basis, even engaging in naval battles against them. So I'm guessing that it probably wasn't heart disease. It was probably some six-footer named Olaf. But thankfully, Ethelwulf had an heir, a spare, another spare, a spare for that spare, and just for funsies, one more spare. And a daughter, just to round things out. So, while losing sub-king Aethelstan of Kent was rough, all wasn't lost. Aethelbert, son of Aethelwulf, was able to step up and become the new sub-king of Kent. However, even though the throne of Kent was secure, this was probably a pretty depressing time for King Aethelwulf of Wessex. In a short space of time, he lost his eldest son and his wife, Osburga. He was also up to his neck in homicidal ginger maniacs. So the point is that Aethelwulf was having a pretty bad string of luck in the lead up to 855. But bad luck is just that. Bad luck. What could he hope to do to fix it? Well, if he was a commoner or an average noble, he'd just have to suck it up and hope he gets better. But Aethelwulf wasn't just anybody. He was the king. So damn it, he was going to seek a bit of help from the matter from the one place that had the ear of the Almighty. He was going to Rome. Now, the fact that he was taking a pilgrimage to Rome suggests that he probably had been a bit sick as well. Because a lot of times, that's why a trip like this would be taken. Furthermore, based upon later events, it's possible that he wasn't expected to return home either but we'll get to that in a minute. But yeah, looking at the bits of evidence we have, it looks like he had plenty of reasons to want to go and see the Pope and get all this mess fixed. Or, at the very least, 
get blessed before he died so he could get all that fabulous cash and prizes that he was promised in the afterlife. Either way, it was a pretty good deal. And so he went about setting his affairs in order. See, the thing is that King Aethelwulf wasn't stupid. He was the son and heir of King Egbert, after all. And he was very much cut from the same cloth. Dynasty building was the name of the game. And he couldn't leave his kingdom without ensuring that his line was secure. So shortly before this trip, we read of his, quote, decimation, end quote, of his lands. Now, decimation is one of those words that we typically use incorrectly, sort of like we do with ambivalence. When we hear of decimation, we tend to think of a complete destruction. But that's not what it means. Decimation is when one out of every ten is killed. And that is still a lot, obviously. But it's not completely destroying a force. So when we hear of the decimation of his lands, what's probably happening is he got rid of about one-tenth of his land. Now, why would he do that? Well, it becomes clear when we look at the charters and see where those lands were going. He was handing out large parcels of land to churchmen and influential laypeople. It appears that what he was doing was buying support for his dynasty, which is a smart move because historically, heirs of the current dynasty were not the only viable claimants to the West Saxon throne. It appears that there was probably a wealth of West Saxons who could claim a link to Churdich. And perhaps they didn't also have Aethelwulf's dubious link to Kent through his grandfather, Aelmund of Kent. And that probably would place them in a better standing than Aethelwulf's kids. I mean, how easy would it be to claim that the House of Egbert were really just a bunch of foreigners? This was the stuff that coups were made out of. It couldn't be ignored. So Aethelwulf appears to have weighed his options and decided that it was much better to try and keep the more dodgy nobles and churchmen in line through bribery. And again, we're seeing the genius of the House of Wessex. On the one hand, they've been seizing lands like it was going out of style, and undoubtedly stepping on the toes of people that they didn't really see as threats. But on the other hand, they were giving shares of those lands to the people whose support they desperately needed. It was a careful balancing act, and they were playing it masterfully. I think that Egbert would have been really proud of how his son was handling this, actually. And now that the support of his line was dealt with, Aethelwulf needed to deal with the matter of succession. Primogeniture wasn't guaranteed in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, and scholars suspect that even at this early date, Aethelwulf was anticipating that his sons might quarrel over their inheritance, similar as to what was happening in Francia. Sure, Aethelbert had already been given Kent, but the real prize was Wessex, and Aethelwulf's kingdom could not afford a brutal civil war over the throne. A clear line of succession needed to be drawn up. And according to Asser, Aethelwulf left a will stating that upon his death, Wessex would go to whichever of the three brothers lived longest, Aethelbald, Aethelred, or Alfred. On the one hand, that's better than nothing. But, on the other hand, it's only marginally better than Alexander's famous bequest of his lands to the strongest. Seeing that it would just go to whoever lived longest completely failed to address the issue of grandchildren, for example. It also didn't foreclose the possibility of a war between those brothers in order to shorten each other's lifespans. I'm just saying that, while it was better than nothing, I expected a little bit more out of Aethelwulf on this, 
considering how well he'd handled other dynastic matters. But what can you do? So, Aethelbald, the second son of Aethelwulf, would rule Wessex, while his father traveled to Rome, and his brother, Aethelbert, would rule the eastern sub-kingdom of Kent. And with all of that out of the way, Aethelwulf was ready for his road trip. And according to Asser, he brought Alfred with him. And that would mean that if we believe the sources, this would be Alfred's second trip to Rome in the last two to three years. And he was only six. And while that might be the preferred age for modern visitors to the church, he was still pretty young for such a seasoned world traveler. And this is another reason that it's suspected that the records for the first trip were probably an 11th century forgery. But the second trip is a bit more tricky. Sure, this story does come from Asser, and Asser is writing a propaganda piece rather than a firm history, so we can't assume that Alfred definitely went to Rome. But something to consider is that he was much younger than his brothers, quite sickly, and unlikely to inherit the kingdom. I think it's entirely possible that Aethelwulf brought his young, sickly son with him to get blessed, and also to keep him safe while his other sons were out fighting armies of Vikingers. And a trip like this would position him pretty well for a future appointment to the church, which is where the heirs, spares, 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 spare tended to go. In fact, many of the events and facts of Alfred's life seem to point to him being primed for a prominent role in the church from an early age. For example, we know he was bookish. And we're told this story in Asser's biography that illustrates just how bookish he was. Asser says that Alfred's mum, Osburga, had a compilation of Saxon poetry, and she offered it as a prize to the first of her sons to memorize it. And we're told that Alfred won that contest handily, and it was one of his prized possessions. Now, this does an excellent job of giving the reader a sense of Alfred's intellect. The trouble is that like many of the stories that Asser tells us of Alfred's early life, I doubt it's real. But rather, it seems to be intended to get to the deeper truth. The truth that Alfred was smart. And here's why I say that. Osburga was dead by the time Alfred was six. And chances are that this contest would have occurred when he was five or younger. Meanwhile, he had adult brothers. And these were brothers who were engaged in war. Aethelstan was a king. Aethelbert and Aethelbald were being raised to be effective nobles and heirs to the throne should the need arise. Alfred's sister was married. And Alfred was the baby of the family by a fairly large margin, which might be why he had a supernatural name. And while he might have been a very precocious five-year-old, I doubt he could have beaten his older brothers. And don't forget that these stories were coming from Alfred himself. How clear do you think his memories of that event were? And even if they were clear, what incentive did he have to tell the truth? He was trying to win the hearts and minds of the people of Wessex, not provide a factual account of his childhood. He wasn't telling us about his tantrums. He was telling us that he held the divine right to rule, that he was appointed by God himself, and that he showed all the signs of that blessing. He was telling us that he wasn't Alfie, the last man standing. He was Alfred the Great, and despite his late birth, his rule was preordained by God. So yeah, I think this story was probably just a heroic way of explaining Alfred's intellect. 
But the truth is that he probably was reading at a young age. And his interest in literary matters very well could have come about because his parents were preparing him for a life in the church, where reading and writing were very important. And that focus on a future church life could well explain this journey. So, who knows, maybe Asser was telling the truth, and this really was a father-son road trip to Rome. But regardless, this was a huge sign of Aethelwulf's international standing and power. He clearly was not just a king of some forgotten backwater. By taking this trip, he was demonstrating the prestige of his dynasty and his standing in the Frankish and papal circles. He was going to Rome, the spiritual and cultural center of the Western world at this time. And he had help. Significant help. Across the Channel, King Charles the Bald was under threat by the Aquitanians, neighboring Franks, and the Vikings. A triple threat. Charles the Bald needed every fighting sword he had. But even under those pressures, he provided King Aethelwulf of Wessex with an escort to the frontiers of his kingdom. This should give you a sense of how important this King of Wessex was. And once in Rome, Asser tells us that Alfred was confirmed by the Pope himself. Much like the earlier alleged Roman road trip, Asser is telling us that the Pope was doing something well below his pay grade. Not only that, but he was talking about it in terms that made it sound like it was a form of royal anointing. And just like last time, I'm saying it's bull****. Even if he was confirmed by the Pope, and that's a huge if, but even if he was, we can be pretty sure that this was not a royal anointing. Alfred had three older brothers who were all still alive, and not only alive, they were already adults, and two of them were ruling kingdoms in their own right. At most, this meeting in the Vatican would have been just a confirmation. And for those of you who didn't go to Catholic school, a confirmation is basically a ceremony where you confirm your faith. But I'm not convinced that actually happened. Like I mentioned earlier, Asser is writing from Alfred's recollections. How good are your memories from when you were six? I mean, when I was about that age, I ended up going to L.A. briefly. And I remember going there and I remember where I stayed, roughly. But if you asked me what I did, I'd have to go into speculation pretty fast. I'd be like, well, I went to Disneyland because I have pictures of that. But beyond that, I'm not sure. Not great, right? Sure, getting confirmed when you're six is a pretty big event. But Alfred had already met King Charles the Bald and all sorts of other powerful nobles. Would this be such a standout event for young six-year-old Alfred that even as an adult, he'd have a clear and accurate recollection of it? My guess is that if anything happened with a pope, it was just a blessing. Getting a blessing was probably why King Aethelwulf went there in the first place, and his son getting blessed, if he went with him, wouldn't be out of the question. Now, to be fair, that is still a big deal in Alfred's life. But it's not an anointing. And this may have been strategic on Aethelwulf's part. If he had a plan to put Alfred in a prominent role in the church once he grew up, this blessing could go a long way to bolster his standing. So that's my take on the whole thing. Then, after the pilgrimage to Rome was complete, King Aethelwulf made the long journey back to Britain. And of course, this meant that he would once again have to travel through the kingdom of Charles the Bald. And he stopped off in the court of King Charles in October of 855, or maybe 856. 
It really depends on how long he spent in Rome and when he left. Now, Charles would have been about 32 or 33 years old at this point, and most of his life had been dominated with conflict, primarily with his half-brothers and their heirs. The mighty unified empire of Charlemagne had collapsed in the hands of his heirs. And now, Charles needed support. And along comes this older, battle-hardened king who is between 46 and 61 years old. And he'd proven himself to be quite effective against the Northmen. And he was recently widowed. This was great news for Charles because he had a 12-year-old daughter named Judith. Now, it was unusual for Carolingian princesses to marry foreigners, especially foreigners from Britain. Remember the absolute hissy fit that Charlemagne had over the idea of his daughter marrying Offa's son? I mean, that offer nearly led to outright war. But times had changed. Wessex was in a powerful position, and the kingdom of West Francia was in dire straits, and Charles could use a friend. Besides, Wessex wasn't Mercia, and Ethelwolf's grandfather was the king of Kent, a kingdom that had long-standing ties with the Franks. And because political alliances during this period usually revolved around marriage, that was something that was discussed. But there were details to be hammered out. For example, the West Saxons didn't crown queens. Under the West Saxon plan, Judith would have just been Lady Judith, and that did not sit well with Charles. If this marriage was to go forward, she would need to be crowned queen. And not just at some future date, but immediately, on her wedding day. Charles wasn't going to take any chances. His daughter was going to be a queen. Not only that, but upon her anointing, Charles wanted her womb blessed. Let's just let that part sink in. Judith is 12. Anyway, Ethelwolf agreed. Now, it isn't clear if King Aethelwulf knew the significance of the blessing, or if it just seemed like an odd Frankish custom. But Charles certainly knew what he was doing. Aethelwulf had four surviving sons, two of whom were currently reigning as kings in Britain. So Osburga's children had an incredibly firm grip on the line of succession. And while any children that Judith had would have ties to the Carolingian dynasty— it wasn't going to do Charles and his family any good because they'd have a long and unlikely path to the crown. That is, unless Charles did something that weighed things in his line's favor. Hence the blessing. By doing this blessing, any male children Judith had would have an additional claim to the throne. And depending on church support, they very well might be able to pass over Aethelwulf's older children with that blessing. And while it is a clever way to get your family to move to the head of the line, this is the part where I wonder what the hell is wrong with Charles. I mean, he was in a state of near-perpetual war because his mother convinced Louis the Pious to disinherit Charles's older half-brothers. It was a lifetime of war, and not just for him. The chaos of this move was so bad that Louis ended his life in a state of near-perpetual war with his own kids. This sort of conniving just doesn't end well, and it also leads to incredibly awkward family Christmases. But, to be fair to Charles, maybe he felt like he had no choice for Judith, since the economics of the time were so unbalanced and the stakes were so high that he felt that a life in conflict was better than a life out of power. 
It's hard to say, but it seems clear that Charles was cut from the same cloth as his mother. He wanted his line to rule, and he really didn't care if it hurt anyone's feelings. So that's how Princess Judith, who, if she was alive today, would probably get really excited to pick out a new trapper keeper with the ponies on it, married a foreigner who today would be approaching eligibility for AARP. And at that same ceremony, she was crowned queen by the bishop and had her womb blessed. I don't know the details of how that's done, by the way, and this time, I'm actually a little relieved. Then, after the wedding was completed, things went crazy. King Aethelwolf's second son, King Aethelbald, had been ruling Wessex for about a year, and he and his entourage apparently liked it. He probably also thought that this was a lifetime appointment, since kings who went to Rome typically didn't come back. Cadwalla didn't, and neither did Inna. But here is Aethelwulf, apparently refreshed from his journey, and returning with a Frankish tween that was supposed to be Aethelbald's new stepmom. And that would irritate most kids in the best of circumstances, but this also had significant political consequences, since even if Aethelwulf didn't see what was going on, his sons appear to have known what a threat Queen Judith would be if she bore any children. So, while it isn't explicitly stated what the cause of the rebellion was, I think there's a pretty clear nexus of facts that suggest that Aethelwulf coming back to Britain with a French child bride was the ignition point. And so, with the support of the Bishop of Sherborne and the Ealdormen of Somerset, Aethelbald raised a banner of rebellion against his own father. Seriously, did no one pay attention to what happened when Louis tried this? All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com and make sure you join us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast, and we have a bunch of other communities for you to join, and they're all at the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. <laughs>